I invite you to take your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be found account, may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Father, may you open our eyes up to see the truth, perhaps truth that we have known, but may you... Uh, let us encounter it as if we've never heard it before. And that your spirit would uh, deal with every single soul under the sound of my voice. For those who are outside of Christ, that they would see their depraved condition. And that they would run to him. That you would enable them to run to him. That you would even drag them to Christ. And, and Father, we also would ask for us who claim to know your son. That we would be mindful of your amazing grace that has taken us dead, rebellious sinners and made us alive in your Son. May we be captured afresh with the amazing, the amazing grace that you've shown us in your Son. So, Lord, help us, please. We are sheep prone to wonder. And so may you capture us. May you keep us. And may our minds and hearts be so attentive to the movement of your Spirit and your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're working our way uh, through chapter 3, and chapter 3, and it's important just to bring back to, to you where we are so that we'll know the journey. In chapter 3, it breaks out in three specific areas, verses 1 through 8. Uh, we see that Paul is bringing the Jew uh, to guilt, to condemnation, uh, and saying that your privilege does not remove you from God's judgment. In verses 9 through 20, where we find ourselves now, Paul would bring the guilt of, Jew, of the Jew and Gentile by Scripture. He will drive us back to the truth of God's Word, bringing all under condemnation. And then in verse 21, all the way through 425, righteousness, the good news of the gospel, is unfolded and expounded. And so we find ourselves in the second chapter, I should say the second section of Romans 3. Last week, if you remember, we defined the human condition the human condition, and that was found in verses 9 and 12. I'll draw your attention there because we're going to look at not only uh, the, con uh, the condition defined, but what are the characteristics of the condition defined or the description. And Paul would say this in verse uh, 10, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All are under sin. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so he would show us that everyone born is a totally depraved individual. 
that they are morally destitute. Their heart is wicked to the core. In verse 10, none are righteous. That the mind is corrupt. The mind is incapable of any thoughts towards God. And that would be no one understands. Verse 11. And then the final component in the human makeup, uh, sealing the deal, so to speak, on our total depravity, is the captive will in verse 11 and 12. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Now, as we look at the human condition described, that's in verses 13 through 18, which we're going to look at uh, in multiple weeks. I, I want to remind you as a Christian that as you read these description of the totally depraved individual, that's what you once were. And you must always keep into perspective what you were so that you won't drift into a pharisaical attitude of just pointing fingers out there. We must remember what we are. The Apostle Paul never lost sight of what he was. Even to the very end, he would say that I am the chief of sinners. And so he never lost sight of what he was. And so as we look at this description of the totally depraved individual bringing them under the condemnation of God as a Christian... Let it be a time of wonder and awe for what amazing grace has done. Because apart from the grace of God, you are still there. You are still a totally depraved sinner, alienated from God, not reconciled. So as you read this description, let's be very careful that we as Christians don't let the little Pharisee that's still within us look out there and start pointing fingers. But if you're here today... And you don't know Jesus Christ. This is you. You are under the condemnation of God as a totally depraved individual that you have absolutely no ability whatsoever to change that. You are morally destitute with a heart that is wicked to the core. Secondly, your mind is totally corrupt. That your thoughts are continually evil in the sight of God. And thirdly, your will is captive. Unless God grips you and regenerates you, you will not come to Christ. And so that's what you are outside of the Lord Jesus. And you might say, well, Jim, that's pretty harsh. Is that what I came to hear? I would argue that that's one of the highest displays of love is to tell you what you are outside of Christ. And so this applies to total depravity to the sinner and the saint alike. But now let's take a look at the human condition described in verses 13 through 18. And what we see there is that what we are inside always comes out on the outside. Is that what we are by nature inside is what will, what will be manifested on the outside. And so if we are outside of Jesus Christ, totally depraved, then that's going to manifest itself in three things, which we will see in verses uh, 11 through 18. One, it's going to be seen in your speech. Secondly, it's going to be seen in your actions. And thirdly, it's going to be seen in your attitudes. And so Paul would unfold the depravity of man by description, and he begins with the tongue. Or I should say the speech. That's in verses 13 and 14. And then he will move on to the actions. Verses 15 and 16. And then the attitude. Verse 18. Which is no fear of God. 
So as Paul is describing this depravity of mankind by speech and by action and by attitude. Now remember where he's at when he writes this. He's writing this from Corinth. Certainly a city of great depravity. A city of great immorality. A city engulfed in total depravity. And so as Paul writes this letter, he's seeing this. He's seeing uh, the the decrepit nature of man. And he's already alluded to this in Romans chapter 1. But note in verse um, verse 10 of Romans 3, Paul is about to describe now what he has described by his own observation. Now he's going to describe it from God's perspective. God's observation. It's very important that you see in those little three little words there, four little words, verse 10, as it is written. So you can see Paul sitting in the marketplace like he did in Athens, and, and Corinth is not far from there, and you see him observing the idolatry, and he's provoked in his, in his spirit because of all this, and he's looking around, and now he writes to the Romans telling them the state or the depravity of mankind from what he is observing with his eyes right before him. But now, he says, Jew and Gentile, you are guilty and you are totally depraved under the condemnation of God. I see it. It's manifested in speech, in conduct, and in attitude. But now, I'm going to bring to bear upon you the scripture. As it is written, and as he unfolds the depravity of man and the description of man's depravity in verses 10 through 18, he will, lead, he will unleash the power of God's word as he gives reference to the depravity and the description of man as found in the Old Testament. And we will see these unfolded as we look at this. And the first thing we see is the ungodliness in speech condemns humanity. The ungodliness in speech condemns humanity. Look at verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. I found it very interesting that the first description of the total depravity of a person is speech. There's four organs of speech noted in verses 13 and 14. There's the throat, there's the tongue, there's the lips, and there's the mouth. And Paul would prove the depravity of humanity by the sins of speech. And as I mentioned, he would bring the Old Testament to bear upon the words that he said in Romans 1, now applied as it is written in Romans 3. In Psalm 5, 9, he quotes, For there is no truth in their mouth. Their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. He moves on to Psalm 10, verse 7. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. We're going to return to Psalm 10 uh, later on in the message. He also would quote concerning the ungodliness of speech in Psalm 140 and verse 3. They make their tongue sharp as serpents, and under their lips is the venom of asp. And now as the Jew boasts of the privileges, surely as God's privileged people, we will not fall under such judgment. 
We have the oracles of God. And Paul would say, you certainly do have the oracles of God, and they are bringing you under condemnation. You have not obeyed them. You have not heeded them. You have been hypocritical to them. And now they expose you for what you are, no different than the Gentile. Your very speech has betrayed you. Your very speech has given, given evidence that you are receiving, as he would say earlier on, the just condemnation of God. Now, when we look at these uh, sins of speech, and that's all we're going to cover today, you know, verse uh, 13 and 14. Lord willing, we'll cover actions 15 and 16 and 17 next week, and also verse 18, the attitude, the fear of God. But for today, we look at speech. And the reason why we look at speech is because of the importance of speech. Now, we're going to group this under two headings. The first one is the destructive power in ungodly speech by the metaphors that he would use. And then we're also going to look at the deceptive power of ungodly speech. When it comes to speech, it is the most accurate measuring tool of the condition of your heart. The speech, how we talk, what we say, how we say it, and when we say it, is the, is the true revelation of what's in our hearts. And you will know that not when it's smooth sailing, but you will know that in the heated moments of emotions. You will know that when the temptation to be impulsive comes to you and you do not restrain that impulsiveness. I love to fish, and I'm going to say something about fishing later on. The thing about fishing with the, is that when you reel, throw, throw it out there, you're able to reel it back in, your bait. But when you unleash the tongue and what you say, you can't reel it back. And so Paul would say that the ungodly are marked by this poison, this poison in their speech. And Jesus would tell us straightforward, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart... The mouth speaks. I mentioned to you, this to you last week. I want to remind you that the tongue is a neutral member. It's just a piece of cartilage. You know what the tongue does? The tongue is a good soldier or a good sailor. You know what the tongue does? It takes orders from the heart. And it never disobeys. It's never insubordinate. Jesus says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can spend 15 minutes with someone and you will know, you will know their spiritual condition by how they talk, what they talk about. And then as Christians, the application is such that in the heat of the moment, how we talk will tell us a lot about our spiritual condition. But this isn't about the Christian, though we're going to apply that in some principle. We're talking about how God has brought condemnation upon all of humanity because of our speech. And let's first look at the destructive power in ungodly speech. The destructive power in ungodly speech. I, I do want to qualify one thing, and we're going to look at James 3 uh, to do that. Just because you're a Christian, you have not mastered the tongue. Just because you're a Christian, you're not immune to having the poison come from you. Just because you're a Christian, you're not free from the explosive nature of unkind words. But if you're not a Christian, you have no power to stop that. And it's going to come out. 
Let's take a, a look at the metaphors that he uses to describe the destructive power in ungodly speech. Their throat is an open grave. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. There's the first one. There was an unnamed author who paraphrased Paul's description of the ungodly in their speech as an open grave. This is very powerful, so listen. His tongue, or I would say her tongue as well, his tongue is tipped with fraud, his lips tainted with venom, his mouth full of bitterness, his tongue a sword to run through men, and his throat a sepulcher in which to bury them. End quote. Think for a moment, an open grave. An open grave. He says, this is what the speech of the ungodly is. It's an open grave. And again, I want to remind us as Christians, we can easily fall prey to that as well. The open grave, the voices of the ungodly when we hear them, they are the voices of the walking dead. Those outside of Jesus Christ are the walking dead. And the voices of the ungodly are coming from the grave. Paul would say that their throat is an open grave. The sinner's words are the putrid exhalations of a dead soul. Donald Barnhouse said, quote, For the opening of a grave reveals the death within, so the opening of the human mouth reveals the death that is in the heart. End quote. Now imagine for a moment, every one of those graves out there, they were not covered. There's no coffins. They're just exposed. They're open graves. Imagine for a moment the decay and the stench of that decay. You remember uh, in the account of Lazarus being raised from the dead, Jesus had delayed four days. He was deeply moved and he came to the tomb and it was a cave and there was a stone against it. And Jesus gave the command, take away the stone. What did Martha say? Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. That's a pretty soft word for what that stench was. The King James says, he stinketh. He stinketh. The stench of death is unmistakable. The stench of death is unforgivable. I don't know if you've been around death. I have, and it is, it is so putrid. The open grave. Imagine if every cemetery in our land or even in our town was a wide open pit. And for all the, the times and all the deaths that they were wide open, this would be a polluted airspace beyond description. The stench would be overwhelming. And Paul says, that's the mouth of or the heart of the wicked. There is putrid and there they are as, as ugly to smell as an open grave after a body has decayed for a period of time. Do you know one of the clear indications of being born again? There are many evidences towards that, but do you know one of the clear indications of being a new creature in, in Christ? It's the quality of your speech. It's not an open grave. The reason why the Christian speaks wholesome, 
The Christian doesn't use the slang of the world. The Christian doesn't use the language of what they used to be. Why? Because out of the heart the mouth speaks. And in the new covenant and in the new birth, God says, I will give you what? A new heart. And out of the new heart comes wholesome speech. Comes grace-filled speech. Comes restrained speech. Comes the ability by the Spirit of God to bite your tongue when you want to say much and it's best to say nothing. But the wicked have that no ability to that. And so if you're a Christian today, whether you're a new Christian, whether you're a maturing Christian, just take a look and do an evaluation of the quality of the words you use and how you use them. And could you say, and I hope none of you could, my tongue is like an open grave. It pours out decay. It pours out corruption. And Paul would tell us in Ephesians chapter 4, let no corrupting speech come out of your mouth. Why would he tell believers let no corrupting speech come out of your mouth? Because the potential for a Christian to have corrupting speech is real. So we have a picture of the open grave. I hope that in conversations that I have, and I hope in conversations you have with other Christians, that the person walks away from you and walks away from me and looks and say, his conversation stinketh. His conversation has an odor. His conversation lacks the sweet fragrance of the Lord Jesus who was said of him that he spoke with gracious words, and those were the description given by unbelievers. So Paul then would bring condemnation to the Jew and Gentile by Scripture, showing that their speech, their ungodly speech, is destructive. It's destructive, and it is as putrid as an open grave. But the, sec- the second metaphor he would use, look at verse 13 in the second part. Not only is the tongue of the wicked an open grave full of wretched, wretched decay, but he says the tongue, the tongue or the throat and the tongue is as the venom of asp. The venom of asp. And notice where it is. It's under their lips. The second picture we see then of the ungodly tongue is that of the poisonous viper. The poisonous vipers. The venom of an ass or the poison of vipers or the viper's venom, as some de- the translations have it, is under their lips. And you'll see that under the lips, once that's released, their mouth is full of cursings and bitterness. One writer has described what this bite of an asp or a viper is. He says, the fangs of such a deadly snake Ordinarily lie folded back in the upper jaw. But when the snake throws its head to strike, those hollow fangs drop down. And when the snake bites, the fangs press a sack of deadly poison under the lips, injecting venom into the victim. And so Paul would say it's under the lips. It stands ready to be unleashed. And that when it comes out and it bites into the victim, then this whole apparatus begins to pump in venom that's deadly into the recipient. And how, like the ungodly, they had this poison just right under their lip, ready to be released. And oh, may it never be said of a Christian that we have this poison 
right under our lips, ready to be unleashed in the heat of a moment or in something we don't like. There's an interesting story. It's somewhat debated about Cleopatra, the queen of Egypt. There was a lot of pressure, and she felt that uh, the loss of her kingdom was imminent. She took two of her handmaids, and they, both, they all three committed suicide, and the means of suicide was allowing a poisonous bite from an asp or an Egyptian cobra. The deadly, because they knew how deadly it was and how quick was the end. The Lord Jesus and John the Baptist himself would tell us of this poison, this viperous poison that comes from the ungodly, and they would attach this description to false teachers. To false teachers. John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 3, but when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Oh, you esteemed religious leaders. You know your Bibles, you should have said, Jim, please, that's not right. They didn't say that. He said to them, you brood of vipers. How affirming is that? But how true was that? Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, it is cut down and thrown into the fire. Later in Matthew's gospel, the Lord Jesus would use the same description of the false teachers. Verse 33 and 34, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But when you look at the poisonous nature of the unregenerate, whether it applies to the unregenerate individual or the unregenerate false teachers, there's something else that occurs. Look at verse 14 of, um, of Romans 3. You say this is the fruit. We just read where John and Jesus said, uh, bear fruit. Well, the, the totally depraved individual with the poison of their tongue, with the open grave of the tongue, they also produce fruit. And verse, um, in verse 14 is the fruit. Curses and bitterness. Curses and bitterness. Curses and bitterness are defined as the fruits of the hatred that is in the heart of the individual. Go out in our culture today and listen to the garbage that's being told in every realm of, of society. And call them out as vipers and see what you're going to get. You're going to get much cursing, much bitterness. In fact, you don't have to call them vipers. You just have to proclaim the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's what you're going to get. And the more that you take a stand, and I take a stand, and our church takes, takes a stand, and says there's only one name under heaven whereby man can be saved. Only one name, not many, not pluralism, not relativism, not humanism, not any of that. There's one name, it's Jesus Christ, and if you don't bow to him and confess him and surrender to him, you are going to suffer the condemnation and wrath of God for all eternity. Now when you say that, in an ungodly, totally depraved society, you are going to get an unleashing of the poison of society, and that will be in the form of curses and bitterness. In a world increasingly hostile to Christians, 
the total depravity of man in speech will accelerate more and more and more. But let's be very careful because Christians can also be guilty of this. You can harbor a critical attitude towards someone and in God's economy, an attitude towards someone that's critical is the same thing as speaking it. So be very, very careful, Christian. And as If we're going to be a genuine community, you know what's going to happen? If we're going to be a real family, a spiritual family, it's going to happen. We are going to hurt one another. It's inevitable. Why? Because I'm still a sinner. You're still a sinner. And you're going to say something to someone that's going, uh, that's going to hurt someone. You may, and hopefully never intentional. But regardless, it's going to happen. Now, what do you do in your physical family? And maybe none of you in your physical family ever have said things to family members that you regret. Maybe none of you are there. I have. I've said, said things I shouldn't have said. And it's not long after it's out there and I see the damage it's done. I think, oh, I wish I could reel that back in. And there's going to be people that's going to say something to you. Hopefully not intentional. And it's going to hurt you. How you respond to that will speak volumes of how close you are to the Lord Jesus. And if it's respond in like this with curses and bitterness... You know what a curse, uh, know what it means there, curses and bitterness? It means, it means to desire the worst to happen to someone. Or it means to desire uh, 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 trouble would happen to one. Or it's to maintain a spirit of hostility against them. That's what the curses and bitterness is. And so, yes, this de- describes the total depraved, but it's always a danger with us as Christians. And I think one of the great things that we have to understand in the goal of building community is the vulnerability and the transparency and the love that's going to allow us to allow those things to just move on. You just got to move on. You remember the uh, old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It sounds so good, and it is absolutely so false. It is so false. Proverbs 11.9 says, With his mouth the godless man would destroy his neighbor. Proverbs 16.21, A worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. You know what a scorching fire will do on a prairie land or in a field? It will burn it to the ground. Proverbs 18.21, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 12.18, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrust. Get a picture of that. Again, in the heat of a moment, you say something out of a vindictive heart or you just want to get back at someone, you say something. Solomon says it's just like a sword thrust in the gut. Many relationships have been greatly damaged by that. Many. And I don't want to say beyond repair because I don't think anything's beyond repair because of the amazing grace of God. We don't have to live in that bitter, critical of the unsaved, the depraved, as Christians. Why? Because the grace of God can repair. It may take some time. Love bears all things, pleases all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and the greatest of these is love. But I think it's important as we talk about the depraved tongue and their speech, how it is poisoned like a snake, how it's like an open grave. As I mentioned earlier, don't look around, even here, don't look around at someone else. Because you have no power whatsoever to control your tongue, saved or unsaved. 
Take a, take a look with me at James chapter 3. Now, I know the context of James 3 is don't be teachers, don't many of you be teachers, but the principle applies when it comes to our speech. If there's one area that you need to be convinced of our total dependency upon the grace of God, it's got to be in tongue control. It's got to be in tongue control. James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, and we guide guide their whole bodies as well, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue. It's a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. You remember all this rapid, and it seemed like every year they had these this ever so destructive wildfires out west. And how do they normally start? Very small. That's what James is telling us. He says, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Friends, there's a warning in that, that no matter how much we serve God, no matter how gifted we are, and no matter how much activity we serve, if our tongue is not wholesome, all that doesn't matter. It's the quality of your speech that reveals your character which puts emphasis or affirmation on your service. Woe be to the one. I mean, how can I stand here and preach truth to you and have an unhealthy, gossip, slandering tongue? You're going to look at me and say, really? Really? For every kind of beast and kind of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Sounds like the snake that Paul's describing. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. We just heard that from Paul as well. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring uh, put forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The totally deprived person, that's how they live. No control of the tongue. Unleashing venom. Unleashing uh, the, the, the putrid nature of an open grave of the walking dead. But for the Christian... We have, we have been given the Spirit of God to put restraint upon us, to know when to be silent, and know when to talk, how to talk, and what to talk. And I would give you this as, a, as an encouragement, and even a challenge. It's something I, I want to do in my own life. If you're getting ready to talk about somebody, and you're getting ready to talk uh, uh, to somebody about someone, perhaps a, another Christian... Before you let it out, ask this question yourself. Would I tell that to that person face-to-face? Would I look that person in the eye and tell them exactly what I'm about to tell to that other person? Something to think about. I think it's far easier to talk about someone when they're not present. But would you say that to their very face? 
Let's move on. Verse 13 of Romans 3. We're winding this down as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Let's look at verse 13. And the little phrase there at the end of verse 13, we see the description, the, the vivid picture of the open grave and, and, the, and, and, the, and the, the ugliness, or I should, the stench of that. It says they use their tongues for what? They use their tongues to deceive. The wicked dead have a purposeful use of their tongue. And not only do we see in these metaphors the destructive power in our tongue or our speech, but now we see the deceptive power. The deceptive power. I mentioned uh, Psalm 10 earlier. I'm not going to go back and read all the psalm. I would encourage you to do so. But, but Paul quotes from Psalm 10, verse 7. And he says, his mouth, this is the wicked. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit. He takes that Old Testament oracle and he brings it and applies it in Romans 3. He says, his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Now, Psalm 10 does not have any specific historical content like, you know, some of the Psalms do. A lot of Psalms do. You know, Psalm 51 is David's re, uh, repentance and some various other Psalms. Psalm 10 does not have that. And as you read Psalm 10, I read it and I titled it in my Bible. It's the Psalm of Total Depravity. And if you read it, you're going to see the very things that Paul says describes those dead and outside of Christ. Psalm 10 is all over that. A very vivid description of the unsaved. But notice what Paul, when he quotes uh, Psalm 10, 7, he said his mouth is filled. Well, if something is filled, there's no room for anything else. Once it's maxed out, you're not putting anything else in it. And Paul would say in quoting Psalm 10 that the wicked has no room for any good thing. Nothing good comes out of the mouth of the wicked. Spurgeon, as only Spurgeon could, says of this, quote, Here is not only a little evil there, but his mouth is full of it. Let us look under this man's tongue as well as in his mouth. Under his tongue is mischief and vanity. Deep in his throat are the unborn words which shall come forth as mischief and iniquity. Now, in Paul's word that he uses, deceive, and he says that they use it, so they purposefully plan this tongue use. The word deceive means to trick. It means to use trickery. In this case here, to attempt for someone to believe an untruth, the false teachers that Jesus and John would the Baptist would refer to. The word is interesting, the word deceit. In the original uh, sense, it meant to bait. To bait. As I mentioned, I love the fish. I mean, I love the fish. And... Um, I don't use live bait. Now, some of you use live bait, and I think you're cheating. Uh, and, um, and I know some people say, well, I catch more with live bait. Yeah, I got that. Let me go with you, and I'll show you contrary to that. You know what I like about fishing with artificial bait? You deceive the fish. You deceive them. You trick them to think that what you're giving them is the real deal. And there's nothing like the feel of conquering when you, when you catch one on an artificial bait that you chose. And that you get a, you, get a, you put this, well, that, 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 that color didn't work, so I'll try the white one. And next thing you know, you deceive the, the nice little lunker that hits that white one instead. Paul is saying that of the wicked, they bait. They bait people, putting out the false so that they'll bite that. 
And is not the world and so-called Christian pulpits today feel filled with deceit, baiting gullible people, deceiving them? And so Paul says that's the, that's, that's the condition of the unsaved, is they're throwing out the falsehoods. They're denying the deity of Christ. They're denying the Trinity. They're denying the sufficiency of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture. And all these people are hitting that false bait and being deceived. And God gives them over to the lust of their flesh. God gives them over to their passion. And he gives them over to a reprobate mind. And so for our responsibility as a church, your pastors, your, your, your leaders, your elders, your, your teachers, our responsibility is to equip you from Ephesians 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. Now get this, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, every human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful baiting schemes. That's what the ungodly does. And so what do we see then? Paul brings condemnation to all humanity, Jew and Gentile alike, how as it is written by Scripture. And he begins first by bringing everyone under condemnation by our speech. The destructive power of speech. As, as, as putrid as an open grave. As deadly as a poisonous snake. And then he says, there is the deception in the ungodly tongue. The deception that puts out falsehood, masquerading as truth, snaring them and bringing them to their own destruction. And for the church, let us be careful. We are not totally sanctified. We are not eradicated when it comes to the tongue. And we can too fall back and use the tongue for destructive purposes an open grave, a poisonous snake, producing critical bitterness, bitterness. And may we not known, be known by that because you can destroy a witness quickly by the impulsiveness of a tongue that bites instead of edifies. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the ungodliness that brings condemnation in the actions of the totally depraved. That's verses 15 through 17. And then the ungodliness that bring condemnation in their attitude. Verse 18. And that is, there is no fear of God. Father, thank you so much for your word. And thank you for loving us. Thank you for being patient with us. And Father, for those that are here today that are outside of Christ, please show them their hopeless condition. Show them that they can't change, that they can't do a heart transplant. Would you show them uh, their sin? Would you show them their violation of your holy, holy law, your word, and enable them to embrace Christ? Grant them repentance. Grant them faith. And may they go from a wicked heart with wicked speech to a new heart and wholesome speech. And for us as your people, Father, may we ever be on guard that though we've been delivered from condemnation, our tongue is still an evil. It can be used for good purposes as well as destructive. In Jesus' name, amen.